Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Looking forward to this season's Recovered Voices project, chorus director Jeremy Frank shares a few of his favorite unsung operas, works that have been underperformed or omitted from the standard repertoire. Listen in as Jeremy breaks down what makes each of these works so exciting and worth exploring. Tickets to LA Opera's 23-24 season are available now at laopera.org. Hi, my name is Jeremy Frank. I'm the chorus director at LA Opera, and I'm excited to welcome you to today's episode of Behind the Curtain. As I've been studying our upcoming repertoire for the 2023-24 season, I've been getting really excited about all the things that the chorus will be doing this year. We have some big titles and wonderful titles. But if I'm being honest, one of the things that I'm most excited about is the double bill that we'll do early in 2024 of Highway 1 USA by William Grant Still and Der Zwerg, by Alexander von Zemlinski, which are part of the Recovered Voices project. If you've been around LA Opera for the last 15 years or so, you know that the Recovered Voices project is, is an opportunity for us to highlight, to literally give voice to composers who were forgotten or who were worse suppressed for various reasons, for various forces. I find this idea that we will present these works and, and give them back their rightful place in history, one of the most noble projects that we do. But the idea of the Recovered Voices Project got me thinking about other pieces that we don't necessarily hear all the time. And it's been a big philosophical question I've asked myself for the last two or three years during the pandemic. What is the meaning of standard repertoire? What is our operatic canon, so to speak? Does it deserve to be the canon? And what else should go in it? Or should we just break down all the walls and not have a canon and just explore pieces widely and broadly across a huge swath of different kinds of operatic composers and operatic voices? I think you get the idea of where I'm going with that and what the answer will be. Part of this discussion today, I thought it would be interesting to talk about three pieces that you rarely get to hear in America. And then after that, I'll tell you a little bit about um, the Recovered Voices projects to whet your appetite and to get you ready for the next season, uh, which I'm excited about. Before we get to discussions of those pieces, though, let's take just a second to unpack this term that I just hinted at, the Western canon or canonical repertoire or standard repertoire, three different ways of saying really the same idea. What is that? When we're talking about art, we're talking about high culture, literature, music, philosophy, and works of art, which through the course of tradition have become highly valued, especially in the global West. And the pieces that form this repertoire take on the status of being classics. Now, that doesn't prevent these pieces from being known globally or being valued globally. But I think the concept of having standard repertoire is really a double-edged sword. 
In one way, the popularity of these pieces and their prevalence in repertoire during the seasons of all the world's opera houses or museums um, can act sort of like an artistic gateway drug. It can be a great way, like if you want to introduce your best friend to the art form of opera, take them to Carmen or take them to La Boheme or take them to La Traviata, something that distills many of the aesthetics down to their core and tells a great story. But the biggest problem with the idea of a standard repertoire or a fixed canon that we can't alter or change is that if there are composers, and boy oh boy are there, who aren't already grandfathered, or shall we say grandmothered into this group of composers, we risk missing out on tons of different threads in this tapestry of repertoire, which represents the totality of opera or the totality of art. And because of that, there have been lots of movements to include non-Western music, both in the 20th century and today. But we're living at this really exciting time where we're able to amplify, to give the stage to a lot of really deserving composers with all sorts of points of view on what makes art and what makes life interesting. And for that, I'm super excited about this, this coming season. So that kind of addresses some of the aspects of the Recovered Voices part of today's episode. But it occurred to me as I was putting together today's presentation that there are several other kinds of pieces that have been omitted from the standard repertoire not necessarily because of racism or anti-Semitism or world wars or those kind of forces, but pieces that were really quite popular at the time of their premiere, at the time of their conception, that for other reasons fell out of the repertoire. And it's an exciting time, particularly as we come back from the pandemic and are able to, again, binge live performances uh, I've been able, I've had a chance to get to see many of these rarities, I suppose we could call them, or deep cuts. These deep cut pieces, I strongly believe, are a kind of cousin to the recovered voices pieces, because the commonality between all of them is that we haven't gotten a chance to hear them nearly enough. <laughs> and I'm thrilled today to introduce you to some of the deep cut pieces, and to give you a little tease about the really great work that you're about to hear from our Recovered Voices pieces this season. So let's jump into the deep end of the pool. The first deep cut piece that I want to tell you about is La Gioconda by Amilcari Ponchielli, who was a contemporary of Giuseppe Verdi, arguably the most famous Italian opera composer of all time. So that might hint one of the forces at play in the reason that this piece isn't quite as popular as almost every Verdi piece ever. But before we get there, I'll just acknowledge for some of you who are super big opera nerds and listen to a lot of deep cuts music already, you could very strongly make the case that I'm making a mistake, including this on a deep cuts list, because La Gioconda gets performed all the time if you live in Italy. <laughs> if you don't, you almost never get to see it. 
La Gioconda was written in 1876, and it was a huge success. It followed Verdi's Aida by five years only and predated his Otello, which was written in 1887. And it was a huge success. And it's a lot of really, really beautiful music, a really boilerplate kind of story. I'll tell you just about that in a second. But one of the tremendous things about La Gioconda is it requires huge forces to pull off. Um, There are 10 main characters. Uh, Anytime you get north of eight main characters, you're talking about a lot of money to pay the principal soloists. And of those 10, six of them are massive leading roles. And in fact, there's this curiosity that happens where there's one of those kind of leading roles for each of the voice types. There's one for soprano, one for mezzo-soprano, one for contralto, which is also in and of itself kind of a rarity because many composers don't write for that rich, earthy, low-voiced female singing. Then, of course, there are roles for a tenor, for a bass baritone, and for a baritone. It's a really wonderful piece. The story itself is also maybe not exactly uh, modern standards, but the whole story takes place under the backdrop of the Inquisition. By the way, that word, Joconda, means the happy woman. When I saw it, I thought, oh, what a terrible title. She's anything but happy, as I'm about to tell you. But Italians are not immune to irony. So they <laughs> that title is meant to be ironic because she lives this really terrible life in which it would be impossible to really be happy. And yet we have this piece, La Gioconda. Right at the beginning, she rejects the advances of this state spy. And it sets into motion all kinds of terrible things. There's infidelity. There are secret relationships between the main characters. There's uh, tragic love triangles, and La Gioconda is usually on the losing side of all of those. There are attempts at revenge. There's forced suicide, which in the context of the culture that this was written was also manipulative because if you can force somebody to take their own life, that condemns them to hell by the religious dogma of the time. There's poison, there's stabbing. It's <laughs> it's a lot to take in, but it's it's a fascinating story. It's engaging and something that if it were not so expensive to produce because of the 85, I'm saying 85, but really it's 10 main characters. Oh, I should also mention another place where a lot of the expense comes from. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to see La Gioconda uh, performed at La Scala last summer. And I looked up on stage and there was a chorus of over 120 adults and a kid's chorus And one of the most famous pieces of music that you would recognize uh, from La Gioconda is the Dance of the Hours, which is an extended ballet sequence. We know it because of parodies of this music. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That comes from this show, actually. And uh, because of the ballet music, you also need a huge corps de ballet to be able to dance this music.
in addition to the 10 superstars, then we also have, I don't know, 160 plus other people. It's an easy stretch, given those kind of numbers, to realize that the only opera companies that really have a shot at pulling off La Gioconda that requires all of these forces are really the world's largest opera companies. It's no surprise when I saw this piece, it was at La Scala that has a resident ballet company and a, a excellent and large chorus. The place in America where La Gioconda most frequently gets done is the Met in New York, actually. And in fact, they had um, productions of this title in 1983, 1990, 2006, and then that was revived in 2008. But if you think about it, that means that in America, we've only been really able to hear this piece four times in the last 40 years. If you have an opportunity to see this title or maybe watch it on a on an excellent recording, it's really worth it. It's it's a beautiful piece. It's unlike other things that you might see. It's it's really got its own uh, voice. And without belaboring the point, uh, this is one of those voices that we really have to be able to hear if we want to know all of what opera is capable of. The last thing I want to say about this piece before we move on to the next one is, as is true with a lot of the repertoire that we're going to talk about today, because of those six excellent leading roles that represent each of the different kinds of voice types, this piece can be a wonderful vehicle for the world's top singers. And in fact, at the Met again in 1967, the cast was Tibaldi, Caruso, and Rosalind Elias as three of those six characters. In 1946, they had uh, Zinka Milanov, Rize Stevens, and Richard Tucker. Like, you, if you had a chance to be in the theater on that night, you were in for um, world-class singing, like a once-in-a-century kind of thing twice in a century kind of thing. So that's the kind of excitement that can be drummed up by this repertoire. Since we were just talking about La Scala a lot and its production of La Gioconda last summer, it actually is an excellent segue to our second piece today, which is Antonin Dvorak's Rusalka, which was the hot ticket at La Scala this summer. It is a lovely production that they did. It's been written about in the New York Times. But the big reason that this made news on both sides of the Atlantic for being such a rarity is because it was the first time in La Scala's history that they had ever done Rusalka, which was written in 1901. It made me just ask myself, why has it taken so long? There's a big ballet sequence there, too, um, like like we were talking about in La Gioconda, and uh, it was very beautifully danced at La Scala, again, by the ballet. But I think this piece represents one of the other challenges of recovering operas that haven't been performed enough, and that is Czech is a language that is not really standard for a lot of singers. And so early in the piece's history, this opera by Dvorak was hardly known outside of the Czech lands, as they were sort of called back then. And it reinforced this false perception that um, he didn't compose very much opera. It wasn't true at all. I think he has 10-ish operas. Rusalka is the last of his operas. But even if people knew about those operas, they needed to be able to crack the language and the style of his writing authentically for the piece to be able to really be revealed. 
Nowadays, the world is much smaller than it used to be. And so there are excellent Czech experts, both in the US and in Europe, who can help people learn the language well enough. And in fact, it's caused a big upswing in this piece. Here's a little tidbit that I found while I was researching for today. Between 2008 and 2013, Rusalka was performed by more opera companies worldwide than all of Dvorak's other operas combined, just in that little time period. The piece itself was very popular in its early life, especially in in Czech-speaking Europe, but um, certain important premieres that should have happened at bigger houses that might have amplified that fell through. So there was an early performance uh, that was scheduled to have happened in Vienna. And in fact, Gustav Mahler was supposed to have conducted it. And uh, that just evaporated and never happened. And I I think that was a big force about why we still feel like we only sort of know this piece. After that happened, there was a Czech company uh, who decided to take on the mantle of that performance. They performed it in 1910, but because it wasn't through the state-sponsored opera house, it didn't get very much traction. To avoid the language problems, there was a German translation of the piece that was commissioned, and that was performed in Stuttgart in 1935. But It also, uh, not being really authentic to the original language, didn't catch fire the right way. And in 1950, after a performance in the UK, it was, this is a quote, it is left to amateurs to stage for us those operas by composers howsoever eminent, which do not get into the international repertory. So they were, in essence, lamenting the fact that the piece and the composer are excellent, but because people didn't give the right kind of attention to it, the performances themselves weren't reaching the potential of the piece. And that was one of the forces that kept Rusalka underperformed for decades. Now, finally, Rusalka made its way to the U.S. Its U.S. premiere was the year of my premiere, 1975, And uh, it took until 1993 for the Met in New York to take interest in this piece. And that was the first time they performed it. But since that time, one of the world's most famous and most beautiful Rusalkas was Renee Fleming. And this would have been fairly early in her career. And because I can only imagine that Dvorak himself would have been enraptured by her performance of of this role and of especially of the famous Song to the Moon, which happens early in the piece, because of interest in Renee and her singing and uh, and its beauty, she became a big champion for this piece, which now gets done more frequently. I won't spend much time talking about the story of Rusalka. It is based on some of the same mythology that the 
Little Mermaid is based on. Of course, being opera, it's not a happy ending. Um, <laughs> but all of that stuff comes from the same source. And if you have the opportunity to see it, Rusalka, because it's so very beautiful, also happens to be a great first opera to take somebody to, even though it's not something you're going to be able to do very frequently. We actually had a chance to take my sister this summer, who has been to the opera several times now, but uh, she enjoyed it as much as we did. And I thought it spoke to the piece's universal beauty and universal excellence. We're going to stay in New York at the Met for today's third deep cut piece, which is Fedora by Umberto Giordano, which was written in 1898. Now, when I told a friend that I was going to include Fedora as one of the deep cut pieces today, he said, you mean the hat? <laughs> and I do not. I do not mean the hat. Fedora is actually the title character. She's the heroine of this story which I'm going to go into some detail about because I think it holds the clue about why this piece doesn't get done quite so much. At the beginning of Act One, we meet Princess Fedora. She is supposed to marry this Russian count the next day. And uh, she can't do that because he comes into her apartment having been like stabbed and assassinated, attempted. He goes and lays down on the bed and relatively promptly dies. Uh, it turns out that he's been having an affair and he has gotten mortally wounded and then the people around brought him to Fedora's house. But she doesn't know this yet. And so she swears to avenge his death no matter what. And she does that by... Dun, 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 act two. She promptly falls in love with another count. This guy is Count Ipanov, uh, a Russian guy. It turns out he is the assassin of the first guy she was supposed to marry. Uh, he declares his love for her in a really famous uh, and very short aria called Amor Tivieta, which is probably the best known piece from this opera and a vehicle for lots of star tenors for all the decades that this piece has existed. After confessing his love to her, Ipanov decides that he has to tell her that he is the assassin. So he does. And you would think that that might stop this romantic energy going on. No, not even close. Uh, the two of them return to Russia, even though this uh, Ipanov guy has been exiled for doing terrible things. But they're off to Russia to live in St. Petersburg and ride bicycles. There is actually a bicycle aria in this piece, which seems a little quirky. I'm sure it was all the rage, uh, all the new fangled technology uh, at, when the piece was written. In any case, in Act 3, we find out that Fedora has written to the chief of police in Paris. She sends him this letter and implicates people who were involved in her original fiancé's death. Those people include, though, Ipanov's own brother. And 
So he gets implicated, uh, gets put in jail. The jail floods, and then he dies. And then when Ipanov's mom hears that his brother has drowned in a jail, she just spontaneously dies of sadness uh, upon hearing about it. So everybody, the whole team, Fedora and Ipanov, hear about this via letter in St. Petersburg. Fedora feels bad, but not as bad as, as she's about to feel. When Ipanov uh, finds out, he gets a letter from the family that all of his relatives are dead. They don't name Fedora. They say it's just some Parisian woman and he has to put two and two together. Dun, dun, dun. He gets angry. He won't forgive Fedora. So she decides to drink a vial of poison uh, from this little necklace with a cross that she wears the whole night. And she just always has it around in case she needs to poison herself or others. So she takes <laughs> takes the poison. She dies in Iponov's arms, who has like an 11th hour pang of regret that he's caused this woman that he loves to poison herself. But it's too late for her to be saved. And after hours of glorious music, the opera ends. <laughs> so I sound like I'm making fun of it. I'm not at all. I actually loved seeing this piece at the Met last year. It felt like watching a French, Russian, Italian telenovela or something. It was riveting drama. But it is not the normal kind of aesthetic that we generally see when we see even opera stories where everybody tends to die at the end. Those are dramatic. This was melodramatic squared. And I think part of the reason that Fedora hasn't been performed more of the years is because of this wild and imaginative aesthetic where all of this can happen and none of it is too far out for this universe, this operatic universe. It's frankly, a flavor that I really appreciate. And I kind of wish we had little flickers of it more throughout the repertoire. And because of that, I think this is also one of those deep cut pieces that is really worth reviving. In the same way that Joconda is a great star turn, and so is Rusalka for, you know, the world's best singers, Fedora is the same way too. The role of Fedora is a great vehicle and the character Ipanov, who sings Amor Tivieta, is also meant for a star. I should also mention, just as we kind of bring the discussion of Fedora to its close, that this is a piece that you might actually get an opportunity to see, because since the 1990s, there's been a really big resurgence of interest in the piece. It's been performed at the uh, Wiener Staatsoper, at La Scala, at the Met. Chicago Lyric has done one, so has Washington National. Uh, the Royal Opera House in London has done it. Covent Garden has done it. And the Met's done it four times in the last 20 years alone. So it's something worth keeping your eye out because I hope that this will be a deep cut that just uh, takes its rightful place alongside all of its operatic brothers and sisters. The idea of taking your rightful place in history is really a lovely transition to talking about William Grant Still's Highway 1 USA, which forms the first half of our uh, double bill this year that I'm super excited about and keep telling you about. William Grant Still himself, he was born in 1895 in Mississippi. Uh, he was raised later in Little Rock, Arkansas, but he is widely regarded, even in his own time, to be the dean they called him the Dean of African-American Composers. 
He's a wildly prolific guy. Over 200 works, eight complete operas. But because of the time that he lived in, he was writing in the 1930s and 40s, fully 15 to 20, 25 years before Marian Anderson broke the color barrier at the Met on stage. He was largely not just ignored, but he was just suppressed. Let's just call it out. In an article with Terence Blanchard, who you may know was the first African-American composer to be presented at the Met at the beginning of last season with his amazing transcendent piece. That's all in capital letters in case you couldn't hear it. Fire shut up in my bones. Uh, he gave an, an interview and referenced these ledgers that have turned up from the Met detailing that William Grant still had applied to have his pieces be considered for performance at the Met in the time that they were actually written, so in the 30s and the 40s. And because of the race dynamics and the full-on racism at the time, his works were referred to as amateurish. It's criminal. It just is. And in fact, William Grant still was pretty open about the forces that he was up against as he was trying to get operas produced really decades before the modern civil rights movement happened in the 60s. Here's a quote from his diary in 1953. He said that there are companies and individuals which, quote, connive to stop performances of his work. William Grant still continued to revise Highway 1 and some of his other pieces as well, and patiently tolerated a long wait before his pieces would see the stage. In fact, though he started writing it in the 40s, Highway 1 USA received its premiere in a high school in 1963. And then it was another nine years before it was reprised in Jackson, Mississippi at Opera South. In the late 70s, it was in New York City at Opera Ebony. But then it, uh, it didn't get performed again until Opera Theatre St. Louis performed a production of it in 2021. So this is a piece that just really hasn't been seen and really must be seen. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful uh, musical vocabulary and a rich, very fully three-dimensionally American sounding score. Now, I want to be clear when I say that it's an American sounding score that I'm not trying to gloss over uh, the unique aspects of William Grant Stills' lived experience or his race or any of that, but I'm, I'm trying to honor a little bit some of the strong opposition that he himself had to any racial distinctions. In fact, if you contact the William Grant Still Foundation to order scores or to ask for you know, historical documents, they send a lot of material that they promote, that we are all one people. <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways, when you see Highway 1, you'll be struck with this beautiful dichotomy that I think exists in the piece, both in the story, but especially in the music for me. I am impressed by the voice, the unique voice that William Grant still achieves and has, and um, it's part of his birthright. Uh, he was in the in Harlem in the 20s uh, as part of the Harlem Renaissance and wrote and arranged jazz um, and all of that kind of rich 
vocabulary and um, that influential vocabulary for the directions that American music has taken in the 20th century and beyond. That comes directly from him. But it's going to sound to our modern ears very accessible in the best sense of the word. Um, in fact, in a New York Times review of the St. Louis production, they refer to his writing as stylish and unabashedly approachable, attractive to modern opera skeptics. William Grant still himself wanted it that way because he wanted his message not to be ghettoized and not to be suppressed even if we promote it. You know, it's it's meant to be something that speaks to us all. And it does. And the story does. That I'm going to let you discover in January, but I hope this will have whet your appetite at least a little bit for the piece. The second piece of our double bill in 2024 is Der Zwerg, written by Alexander von Zemlinski, which premiered in 1922 and actually had its last performance in the time of the composer in 1926. There's so much to tell you about this piece, more than what I can really do in seven minutes, but it's important to include this piece in our discussion today because the next person who performed this piece in modern times was Maestro James Conlin in 1996. And he's been a champion, not only for the music of Zemlinski and this piece in particular, but he's a, a champion for the idea behind all of the Recovered Voices projects in general. Perhaps the most central question that Maestro Conlon asks of the world about these Recovered Voices pieces is, how would have history been changed? How would have music been changed? How would have art been changed had these composers and their works not been suppressed or killed or compromised? As you may know, Zemlinski is one of several German-Jewish or Austrian-Jewish composers, very prolific just before the Second World War, uh, who the Nazis labeled with the term entartete Musik, uh, degenerate music or degenerate art. And that label was literally a kiss of death for several of them. And for those who escaped, they did so by going into exile. Zemlinski came to the U.S., in fact, and uh, wrote many film scores and, and lots and lots of symphonic music and um, another very prolific composer. That's a fascinating bit of history in and of itself. I, uh, for the purposes of Der Zwerg, which translates as the dwarf, I will be referring to the character Der Zwerg, either in German or as the little person. But um, the story of this opera, which I would like to spend a minute or two going into, actually, I find this part of the history especially charming because it's um, rather transparently autobiographical. The story is based on Oscar Wilde's The Birthday of the Infanta. And if you don't know what an infanta is, in the Spanish monarchy, uh, Spanish nobility, an infanta is a daughter, uh, a noble daughter, but she is not the heir to the throne. So we technically don't call her a princess in that nobility. So uh, the story opens and it is the birthday of this infanta. And a sultan from abroad has sent, 
ein Zwerg, sent the Zwerg, to be a present to her, um, her name is Dona Clara, on her birthday. This little person, this character, uh, being a, a human being like all, anybody else, isn't aware that he is physically different than the other people. And the other characters refer to him in uh, really demeaning terms about his physical appearance, referring to him as deformed and ugly. But the little person himself, the Zwerg himself, doesn't know any of that. And he becomes infatuated really quickly with the Infanta. Uh, in fact, he, he plays the lute or the guitar and sings her a love song. He courts her quite literally. Fanta leads him on until the point that he tries to obtain a kiss from her. And then she very cold-heartedly spurns him and calls him a monster. And at the end of the opera, Der Zwerg dies brokenhearted. So the reason that I find this libretto really interesting, uh, especially as it pertains to the history of the time, is that it is just very thinly veiled autobiography more or less, for Zimlinski's own life. In the early uh, 1900s and 1910s, there was a woman known by Alma Schindler at the time. The world now knows this composer as Alma Mahler. But I didn't realize at first that um, Zemlinski and he had been in love with her. They had a relationship. And her friends very strongly pressured her to break up with him because he wasn't of the right social status and he wasn't uh, handsome um, or handsome enough for their aesthetics of the time. And in fact, shortly after they broke up, Alma met Gustav Mahler and started her marriage with him, which also is complicated and uh, not very happy history for another time. It's interesting to me, both on the personal level, that they all knew each other and that they were so interrelated. But I think it's one of the really important things to consider as we consider German artists of this era who were suppressed, killed, or forgotten. Um, because it was and is, the music, classical music world is still a very small world where we all know each other and all influence each other. And maybe especially because of that, as I conclude my thoughts for today, I think that's one of the reasons why everyone's voice matters so much. Go ahead. Love Carmen. Love Traviata. Love La Boheme. I certainly do. But one of the things that I've been reveling as the world starts to feel a little bit more normal again, and as I'm able to binge uh, so many different flavors of opera, and particularly flavors of opera that I don't get to dine on all that frequently. It reminds me of the really three-dimensional quality of all of the voices that come together in the tapestry of opera. I 
can't wait to see you this season. We've got a lot of those voices in our tapestry, and it would be great to see you at the opera soon. Tickets to LA Opera's 23-24 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.